0: good to have linda with us here today and one of these days you're going to be a permanent member of grace but you're in Gillette. praise the lord the lord answers prayer yes that's randy's mom and but well, she's just such a a dear sister in the lord and wow you just made my day i'm gonna really preach today maybe two hours Well, speaking of preaching, we have been studying 1 Timothy where we have been talking about false teaching and bad interpretation. And it's so important that we do interpret the Bible clearly, uh, We not to take this lightly. In fact, if you go to Bible college or Bible seminary, you will probably take the class called hermeneutics. Now, I know someone has a little video out it's called Herman Who?, But hermeneutics, and that really means uh, the the principles to study the Bible and get the proper interpretation. Now, you know, a pastor, he needs to be very careful and always looking to his teaching and his study, making sure he's giving the right interpretation. But congregations do as well. They always need to be looking not only at the pastor's teaching, but at everyone's teaching and even their own. And, you know, it's true that congregations can be a safeguard for pastors as shown in this illustration here so there's a there is a man before the congregation and there's a a shocked look on their faces and he goes oh of course there may be other interpretations as well meaning he probably said one that they're shocked with by the way so I I guess in a way I have digressed to cartoons for illustrations but let me explain why Years ago, I mean, many years ago. I think even when I graduated from Bible college, somebody gave me a calendar, and every day there's a there's a cartoon on it. And it's a it's it's a religious theme. It's a, and and I have kept it all of these years because some of them are the just the funniest ones. And I thought, well, First Timothy is really about Timothy being a pastor to set things straight in the church and know how we ought to. So. Don't be surprised if you see a few more of these uh, in there. Anyway, this morning we're going to be talking about Timothy as the pastor of the church. He had been commissioned by Paul to do many things, but right now, the very from the get-go, out of the gate, he has been commissioned against false teaching and to deal with false teaching. And last week, we talked about part one of that, where false teachers had come in and they were teaching myths and genealogies and basing their doctrine on it. And it was causing controversies, but it was also causing people to steer away from doctrine and keeping them away from what they ought to be doing. What they ought to be doing, what we ought to be doing always, is sharing the gospel and then teaching the word of God. That's what God has called us all to do as believers. Now it's going to shift a little bit and now we're going to find out that these false teachers had a problem with the law. And they wanted to be teachers of the law, but they misunderstood the law. And we don't have a whole lot of detail, but I think that they probably leaned towards being Judaizers of those days. And what they don't understand is they don't understand the law in regard to grace, they don't understand the law in regard to the coming of christ and how that relationship of the law has changed in a sense so we'll be speaking about that here this morning so timothy's commission against false teaching the proper view of the law let's look now at first timothy chapter one verses five through eight and as you can see i kind of went back. We, we didn't quite finish verse 5, and we want to go through that, but then verses 7 and 8 are going to talk about the law, and not only about it. We'll continue that on in verse 9, but let's pick it up in verse 5, and this is an incredible verse, verse 5. In fact, you know every year we do a theme. One year, this was our theme, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and his work of grace. And Father, that is what sets everything in its true understanding, even the law. We're going to find out, Lord, as we go through your word, the true purpose of the law which was to lead us to Christ. And Father, we must be careful in this day and age as many either use the law in salvation legalism or use the law or principles in sanctification or spiritual legalism. Father, keep us from doing that, but let us follow what the scripture says. Teach us, Lord, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing I want to do is I want to cover verse 5. We mentioned it last week, but it's a great verse, and I wanted to cover it just a little bit more in detail, and that is pursue the goal of instruction. So this is what Paul is talking to Timothy about, and we find out that he contrasts his teaching, the apostle Paul, with the teaching of the false teachers, and it is not love. But the, the, the teaching of the truth of the Bible The goal is love. Well, let's let's look at this for just a moment. Now, first of all, I'd have to say, I think there's an emphasis here on that the false teachers, when they teach false teaching, is certainly not about love. It's not love at all. Um, Because at best, it's about them in vain glory. And we're going to see that. At worst, this false teaching of theirs could lead individuals, depending on what the teaching is, to an everlasting punishment in hell if it is contrary to the gospel. And neither of those is love. But Paul says our teaching is love from beginning to end. And so as you're thinking about this, let's talk a little bit about love. By the way, again, I mentioned again about Votie uh in his sermon today, do not love the world. And so he said, you know, there's a tension there. We're supposed to love, but we're not supposed to love everything. We're not to love the world. And when we talk about the world, when he talked about the world, from, from 1 John, it was the, the chaotic, evil, ungodly system. That which is opposed to God. That which God does not love. That which God says, if you love it, you do not have love for me. But here we're talking about the right kind of love. First of all, love comes from God. It's one of his attributes. It is not the only attribute. And if you're going to have a relationship with the Lord, if you're going to study the word of God and understand who he is, understand that love is not his only attribute. It's a wonderful attribute. It's the one that puts our hearts at ease and at rest but he is also a holy God, a righteous God, an omniscient God, and on and on we could go with the attributes. But when we talk about God's attribute of love, what would we say? Well, they gave it the Greek word agape, which is a self-sacrificial love, a love of choice. And one has defined it as, This agape love seeks the highest eternal good of another. And so, therefore, God's love seeks the highest eternal good of sinners at the infinite cost of his son. You see the idea of sacrifice there, the idea of the other person first, and the idea of meeting their deepest need. And the deepest need of mankind is to know his sin, And then to come to Christ for the forgiveness of that sin. And not to include the law into it as I I have faith plus I have works. This is the love of God seeks the highest eternal good of sinners at the cost of his own son. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. Now here we're talking about the people that are in the world, not the chaotic system or the evil system. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so to teach from the Bible about God's attributes and about God's love, you are instructing and teaching the highest good for man, the highest good for sinners. It's love. Secondly, love, as we just mentioned here, And it's emphatic, and that's why I'm repeating it. Love is demonstrated by the cross in Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us on our behalf. And so God's love was demonstrated ultimately on the cross for the salvation of sinners And so when you teach that, again, you're teaching the highest eternal good for man, that he could be saved, but not just saved by doing good works, not that at all, but by looking to Christ, because that is the greatest demonstration. Not every time, but numerous times in the Bible when you see the word love, it's God so loved the world, past tense. Why? Did he stop loving? No it's to point at that moment when Christ died on the cross that's the ultimate explanation and demonstration of his love but i want to say this too that love is demonstrated in edification so when you think about what a church is supposed to do it's supposed to teach the word so that believers are built up so that they grow so that they're sanctified That's not something that you do vaingloriously. That's something that you give out and are trying to see that happen. And so the goal of edification is to spiritually build up believers, make them more like Christ, make them more spiritual through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God. So to teach God's truth that edifies is indeed the highest eternal good for believers. And I do want to mention Ephesians chapter 4, we did recently finish this great book. Paul talks about love, Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. And in verse 15, he says how we're to do it in love. Not only is the instruction ultimately about love, but even when you teach, it ought to be about love. Hitting someone over the head with the Bible usually doesn't work. But when you share Any truth, no matter how difficult that truth is or how serious that truth is, when you share it in love, then you're teaching it in a way that demonstrates God's love. But speaking the truth in love, speaking the truth, speak it, but do it in love. We do one or the other, don't we? We very seldom do both. We are to grow up in him in all aspects who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So indeed, he is right that the goal of our instruction, God's truth, is love. But then he says, notice, but the goal of our instruction is love from... The Greek word there is ek, it's a preposition, it means out of. So God's love is the source, God's truth is the source and the goal, but there are some things that accompany that, if we're going to have the love of God, give the love of God in our teaching. It it comes out of a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Well, first of all, a pure heart. When we think of a pure heart, the word here, pure, means clean, and you would think free from sin. Now, we have been cleansed by Christ completely, and we need to live in such a way that our hearts are clean. This is talking about moral purity and integrity, moral purity. And when you, when you think about having a pure heart, when you think about how believers ought to be— when you think about the will of God, and this is kind of interesting because this goes against, really, our culture today. Because they just are concerned about, well, if someone loves someone, even if it's of a different gender, it doesn't matter because God is love. That's not the will of God. Turn with me, if you would, to First Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. I want to look at verses 3 through 7. It says this, for this is the will of God. Oh, good. Tell me the will of God. Here it is. Your sanctification, that you're edified, that you grow, that you become more like Christ, that you walk in a godly way. Well, tell me more about it. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Wow, where'd that come from? That is the will of God. That is sanctification. And here he was making it very applicable. And in that day, it was a a, uh, very difficult thing because many of the the cults, the false religions, would have temple prostitutes. And in order to have a closer relationship with the Lord, you had to go to the temple there where they were. And you had that. But you know what? We think of our day, I don't think we have... The temple prostitutes or anything like that, but we have such rampant immorality. He goes on to say that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger of all these things just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. And that moral impurity is not love. You think of moral impurity outside the bonds of marriage. You think of premarital sex. And and I've heard it before, and I think it's a good thing when someone says, when a young man is trying to coerce you to have sex before you're married that is not love that is lust love can wait to give lust can wait to get and so this is what we're talking about here but we're not just talking about those things we're also talking about thoughts i appreciated vody bacham this morning saying look when it says do not love the world, it doesn't mean just abstain from those things, but secretly love those things. That's just as much a sin. In fact, Matthew chapter 5, verse 28 says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So it's the thoughts as well. And today we see the, just the terrible place of pornography. Uh, that, that is sin. That is wrong. There's no justification for that. That messes with your thoughts as if we even needed any help messing with our thoughts. And so if you don't have a pure heart, if you're a believer, you're not going to have love. You're not going to feel like love. You're going to have guilt. And guilt is going to press against the love that you ought to have when you teach. The love that you ought to have when you minister to one another. So then he adds a good conscience. So you need a good conscience. So not only do things that you're supposed to do and not do things you're not supposed to do, but have a good conscience about it. Well, how do you do that? Do you go through uh, therapy? Do you, go, you get electrodes in your mind to kind of zap it out of you? No. The Bible has always been clear. First of all, to have a good conscience, a clear conscience It's gained by receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior. That is total forgiveness there. Hebrews, it talks about the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And one of the things that they never did, well, they never truly took away sin. They only covered sin pointing to Christ who would take away sin as John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Since the Old Testament sacrifices could not take away sin, they could not really take away your guilty conscience, so to speak. In Hebrews 10, it says, talking about these sacrifices, Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. So that's how you gain a a clear conscience as you come to Christ. Secondly, you maintain a clear conscience by confessing your sin to God after you're a believer. You don't need to be saved again after you're a believer. You don't lose your salvation. But you do keep short accounts with God. And whenever there is a thought, word, or deed that you know that you believe it is sin, you confess it to God. And we talked some time ago about David, a man after God's own heart, that series. And we talked about how could David be a man after God's own heart when he grievously sinned with Bathsheba and and was responsible for the murder of Uriah. Well, here's how. Because yes, he was... Also, very sincere in his prayer, Psalm 51, 4, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. First John 1, 9 says this, this is the believer's maintenance right here. Whenever you Sin and thought, word, and deed, and by the way, we all sin, and I I think we all sin daily. I do. I don't know if you do, but I sin daily. In fact, I love the words, and I've said it, and I'll say it. If it's good, I'll keep using it because it just strikes my fancy. R.C. Sproul said, you know what? There's enough sin from the time you leave your house on Sunday to come to church, enough sin in your life to send you to hell. Exactly, you, you, could, you could, in fact, Sunday mornings is one of the worst times. You know, I've, I've, I've heard, in fact, I just heard it this week. Somebody said, you know, we try, to, we try to keep low key in the morning, especially on Sundays, because it seems as if the devil always wants us to fight and get out of that. But the great thing is, is that we, if we confess our sin, not be saved again, but as believers, if we confess our sin, say the same thing. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And by the way, that would also include if I've offended someone else. That's my offense to God. But if I've offended someone else, going back, serious offense, going back and asking for their forgiveness also gives you a clear conscience. And then to strengthen that clear conscience is your obedience, obedience to the Lord. Okay. The, in that thought, word, or deed, I sinned before, but I'm not going to sin now. You, you purpose before God by the grace of God and by the strength of his spirit. You purpose to obey the scriptures, and we find out that in that case, it gives us and helps keep us with a good conscience. And when you have a good conscience, then you're able to love. Your, your guilty conscience isn't trying to grab hold of you and pull you back. And then finally, it's a sincere faith. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, literally what this means is not hypocritical. That's that's the word here. It it, it means not hypocritically, not hypocritical faith. Well, what is that? Well, a a faith that's not hypocritical is genuine, is real, it's bold. And it's not pretending or playing the part. And it refers to believers who take their beliefs and behavior seriously. You know, I'm thinking about this, and someone who doesn't believe in the inspiration of Scripture, and yet is a teacher, how can you not be hypocritical? Because you're teaching this is what's right, and yet you don't know. You don't know if the Bible is the authority of God. But here we do believe that. We do believe, and we talked last week about the authority of the apostles and and the prophets' apostolic teaching, and, and they wrote and infallible in their writings and infallible in their preaching. And I do realize that there were others who were called to write, like Luke and Mark, and we see various others too, but I think they were under the supervision of the apostles. Certainly, if there would have been error in it, it would have been, Recognized and dealt with immediately. But again, I will stress that is not for today. We can't do that. So if you have a religion or a cult today who is saying the leader has received revelation from God and here's the doctrine, and it also includes the law, you have got yourself a bona fide false teacher. A bona fide false teacher, which we'll talk about here. But this is the obedience to God's infallible and inerrant word. <clears throat> with all of these, that is how you can look someone in the eye. With all of these, that's how you could stand before God saying but is, uh, that there's nothing standing in between me and my relationship with God or me and my relationship with another. Then you are able to teach with the instruction as the goal of love. Well, let's move on. We come to verse 6, and it is prevent fruitless discussions. If you aren't a true believer, then you're going to tend to fruitless discussions because you can't discuss the truth. These teachers, and by the way, that's what he starts, for some men. It's the same as when he says certain men. We don't know exactly who these false teachers are. Uh, last week, we, we said that some have thought it was Hymenaeus and Alexander who are mentioned. But the thing is, is that they were, they were cast out by Paul. Paul had handed them over to Satan. Here, it seems like there's others that Timothy is supposed to deal with, certain men. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. So he's, he's wanting him, Timothy, to deal with these. And he's talking about them. He says, and look what they did. They've strayed. Now, I like the word better, deviated. Straying almost sounds like, you know, I forgot my compass and I'm trying to get back to my vehicle in, from the woods. And I strayed. No, this is the kind of thing where they made a choice. They know the right things, but they've made a choice to go toward the other things. And then those things lead to not truth, but fruitless discussion. Fruitless discussion. It is meaningless talk, idle discussion, and empty prattle. There's a good word for you, empty prattle, because it doesn't dispel any truth. Who's it going to build up? Who's it going to help? Who's it going to advise? No one and nothing. It's fruitless. And now here's where Paul turns and he begins to talk to them, not about their myths and genealogies, although it may be connected. Now he's going to bring in their error with the law. This is what gives us the impression that these are Judaizers or they're leaning towards Judaism. He doesn't go into great detail here, but we know in other scriptures he certainly does talk about the Judaizers in fact that's what the book of Galatians was written for and we'll talk about that in just a moment but what we are going to see here from verse 7 is the priorities of false teachers we're going to learn a little bit about false teachers themselves as well as their false teaching with the law and this would make them not Gnostic this would make them Jewish or Judaism that's what this would do so one of the thoughts is, is that these teachers were teaching Gnosticism when probably not because Gnosticism didn't like Christianity or Judaism. So it, it probably is this idea of Jewish Judaism saying you can be saved by your faith in Christ and the law, or faith in Christ, but you have to include the law or works in order to be saved. And so he says, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So if you don't know what you're saying, why are you making confident assertions? Why are you making those assumptions that you shouldn't be making and giving them with authority? And if you don't understand it, you shouldn't even be there at all. And so as we work our way through this let's talk about some of this. First of all let's go back to the idea of Judaizers. Um, When we look at the, the Judaizers that was a group of saved or possibly saved Jews who believed that you had to have faith in Christ as well as keep some of the laws. Now we know that when you were a Jew and you came to Christ, it did not mean that you could not worship on the Sabbath. It did not mean that you could not be part of the festivals. But it did mean that that wasn't a way of salvation. The way of salvation was only through the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in Christ alone. But these Judaizers mingled the two together. Just quickly in Titus, Paul writes to Titus, and I think it's the same thing throughout the church. He was in the, the, the Isle of Crete, and it says, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. And that was their main idea, that they have to be, these Gentiles have to be circumcised in order to be saved, and this is what Paul said about them. In Philippians... <clears throat> Paul says, Beware of the dogs. And that's not cute little puppies. That's strays, mongrels that are in the streets, carry diseases all over the place. Nobody nobody, uh, gets rid of them. They're they're mangy, They're, they're worth nothing. Beware of the dogs. That's what he's calling these false teachers. Beware of the evil workers. They work evil. Beware of the false circumcision. Then Paul says, for we are the true circumcision. Really? He's talking about believers who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. But these Judaizers did that. Now, one of the things that had happened in the church, these Judaizers infiltrated the church and they were giving the church difficulty. And as Paul And Barnabas were encountering these men in this teaching. You can imagine what they were doing. They were debating with them and debating these things. Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 15 for just a moment. Acts chapter 15, and we'll begin it with verse 1. And this is where they're going to eventually have the great council at Jerusalem where they definitively, with apostolic authority, say, no, it is faith alone in Christ alone. It is not bringing any externals, works, or laws into it. Acts 15.1 says, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. There it is. There it is. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Let them know what's going on. And, of course, they're going to have a definitive solution to it, a definitive declaration to it. Down to verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. By the way, we do have false religions and cults that do that today. That is alive and well. But we we see at this council of Jerusalem, we know what Paul's view was. All we have to do is read the book of Galatians. Peter stands up. Now, Peter, as you know, Peter was the one who received the vision to go evangelize to Cornelius. And so he now understood that the Gentiles could come to Christ, that God's offer of salvation was given to them. But never was there anything in there that they had to be circumcised. And at this, at this council, Peter stands up, Acts 15, verse 7. And I'm going to read down to verse 11. It says, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by the mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. So they are the chosen people, the Jewish people, but as also their, their work was to share the gospel with Gentiles. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. They were saved, Gentiles were saved, and they received the Holy Spirit, albeit at times in the book of Acts, sometimes the apostle had to lay hands on them, and I believe that was due in part, a large part, to show apostolic authority. Also, Acts is a transition book. Now, Paul taught in the book of Ephesians that the moment that you hear the gospel and believe, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So someone doesn't have to lay hands on you. And it says, and he made no distinction, verse 9, between us and them. If you're saved, you're saved. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. And I think here is, he's pending into the law a little bit. We haven't been able to keep the law. Why are we putting the law under them? And then you've got to love this. What, did, what was the doctrinal statement of the early church? What was the doctrinal statement of these authoritative apostles? Well, here it is but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are and that is faith alone. And so that's what came out of the Jerusalem Council. Paul we don't his words aren't really recorded per se there but we know what Paul believed because in Galatians that's what the issue was these Judaizers and Paul wrote in Galatians 5 2, behold I Paul apostolic authority say to you that if you receive circumcision you Gentiles. He's writing to a Gentile church who are who are being told by these Judaizers to be circumcised. And he says say to you that if you receive circumcision Christ will be of no benefit to you. It's either law or grace. It's either works or faith. By the way, it's probably a good time to say that we're not. This is the Bible is not con, con, uh, saying anything bad against circumcision, um, for medicinal reasons, health reasons, or wh- whatever. That's fine. But this is, in order to be saved. That's what this was about. That's what the whole book of Galatians was about. And I want to have us turn to Galatians six twelve. Galatians six twelve. Interesting verse. It's going to give us some characteristics of these false teachers, these Judaizers, and I think we can apply it to our text in Timothy. So Galatians chapter 6, look at verse 12. He's talking about these false teachers in verse 12, and he says this. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh... Try to compel you to be circumcised simply so they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. There's three elements there that describe false teachers. First of all, teachers, false teachers are vainglorious. It's about themselves. It's It's like a pastor saying, well, come out on Sunday night. It's an evening with Joel Osteen. No, it's not. No, it's not. We're not there to worship a man. We're there to worship God and to hear the word. If anyone says any good thing about me, first of all, thank you. And I pray that it's because of the teaching of the word of God that I point you to the word. I point you to Christ and certainly not to me. It says here, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh. That's what it was. It was a show. And you do see some pastors. You do see some faith healers that that's what it's all about. It's it's about my show. Come see me. And and you know what? Part of the problem is, is that sometimes believers are followers, are followers of a man, and sometimes it's the wrong man. Now, how do you know it's the wrong man? By his teaching. So it's vainglorious. And that's what these teachers, it says in Timothy, they wanted to be teachers of the law. They weren't, but they wanted it. They wanted to to have that reference. Oh, he's a teacher. He's a teacher of the law, because that would have been big in that day. That would have been big in that day. It's saying that you have gone to seminary. He's a, a seminarian. He's teaching. Well, that's good. I respect that, but what are you teaching? And then, well, no, he's got his doctorate. That, that's good. I mean, it's not easy to get your doctorate. But, but, but what does that have to do with whether you're teaching true or not? You know, our first pastor here, John Ward, used to say that. John Ward went to Bible college, and then he went to seminary he could have gone on to have his doctrine, a doctrinal, uh, his doctorate, could have, but he often said, why? Why do I, why would I need that? That's just a title. I'm here studying the word of God. I, I've learned the principles of hermeneutics. That's what it's about to me, about the work, not the prestige. Not that there's anything wrong with circumcision or having a, doc, a, doctor, a doctorate. Nothing wrong with either of those, but To assume that that means something spiritually is wrong. Then he says this. They try to compel you to be circumcised. They try to make it necessary. You see, it's necessary for you to do that if you want to be saved. Recently, a little bit a while ago, I did have a discussion with a woman who grew up in a very godly home, very biblical home, very conservative home and come to find out she was seventh day adventist. And I was shocked and you know how it is before you can you know before you can lock the door of your lips it was already out. Well well, well you don't believe that you have to worship on the sabbath to be saved, do you? And it was very interesting that she never said, oh, no, of course not. She never said that. But began to go into a lengthy discussion. And when you don't get a straight answer, you start to get a discussion, your flags better go off because they're trying to twist something. And I have to say that her arguments were bad because they weren't biblical. But she was someone who learned the the art of arguing well and bringing in all kinds of things. And that's what we have here. They they compel you to be circumcised. That's what the issue was back then. They compel you to be circumcised. And and they give you not good arguments, but they're good at arguing. And there are various people like that. And and it, it really bothers me because the truth is anybody can be like that. You know, well, if you go to debate class, if you take a debate class, that's exactly what they teach you. And there is some value in that. There's value to to get your own mind to be able to think of all sides to come to the truth. But some people are good at the point where I'm not speaking the truth. I don't even know if what I'm saying is true. But I can give you a confident assurance that it is. And they'll argue. And everything you bring up, boom, they have an answer for, or an argument, but it's wrong, but they can compel you, and then thirdly, the third characteristic, look at this, simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ, let me say this, I think they're men pleasers, they're saying these things to be complimented by certain people, they're saying these things not to be persecuted by certain people. You know, Paul, Paul talks about, if, if I believe in circumcision for salvation, why am I still being persecuted? Paul wasn't afraid to tell the truth, but these people are, and they're all about how to formulate this together to make this teaching. So he's, this is revealing them. And so it it is so odd in verse 7 when he says they're wanting to be teachers, they're wanting to be revered as great teachers, even though they don't understand the subject. Or they don't understand the matters about which they make these confident assertions. Basically, they don't understand the purpose of the law. They don't understand the law in relation to grace. Or to Christ. And what I'd like to do now is I'd like to go to verse 8. And I'd like to spend a little time understanding the law. The law in relation to grace. In other words, the truth of it. The whole entire program of it. So in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, this is what he says. But we know that the law is good. Probably because these false teachers were accusing him of saying, you don't think the law is good. That's not what Paul was saying. And so he, he says, we know that the law is good. Nobody ever said it wasn't. And then he gives this qualification, if one uses it lawfully, which very well could be a play on words. What he means is if one uses it properly, but now he's going to say lawfully. Lawfully, not just according to the law, but lawfully according to God's full administrative plan, which includes Christ. And so let's go through these right quick. The first thing that he says is that the law is good. Of course the law is good because God is the source of the law. And we know God is good and holy Psalm 105, one of his attributes is his goodness, for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. And he's holy, as we saw there in Isaiah 6, before Isaiah's vision of the throne with the the seraphim, holy, 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 to get the idea that he's holy, maybe even a Trinitarian blessing there. So whatever he does, thinks, or says is good always. So since the law came from him, the law is good and holy. By the way, the law is somewhat of a reflection upon the perfect character of God. The commandments become then the moral standard for man. There's nothing wrong with a moral perfect standard. I'm going to explain that, okay? There's nothing wrong with a moral perfect standard. In fact, if you're going to have a standard, it ought to be moral and it ought to be perfect. Of course, we can't keep it, but it ought to be. And so that's what the law does. It demonstrates the perfection of God. Never mind that I may be more moral than my neighbor How am I when I'm compared to God? And so the law is good and has good purposes. In fact, in Romans chapter 7, he says the same thing. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Well, then what does the law do? Well, number two. The law reveals man's sin. There it is. It's the perfect moral law to shed light on the immoral, imperfect man who has, every man has the sinful nature. And sins because he has a sinful nature. And this is explained by the apostle Paul. You know, one of the things that I'm so thankful of the wisdom and ministration of God He called Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Because one might even be tempted to think, well, yeah, this person tried to explain the law, but I'm not sure that they understood it. Paul understood the law. And when Paul really understood the law in light of the gospel, who better to teach us Gentiles the purpose of the law? Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 3. And I have down there the reference Romans 3b. So I'm just going to read B because I'm going to refer to A in a little bit. So Romans 3.20b says, For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is how you know what sin is. I look at the perfect standard coming from God. I look at the moral standard and I go, wow, I'm not even close. I'm not even close. And so the purpose of the law was to show sin. It was to show sin. Paul says in Romans 7, 7, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, Even, even Paul. And the idea is, okay, well, maybe that's true, but maybe if I only violate some commandments of the law, maybe I'll st- maybe my good will outweigh my bad. No, that's not going to happen. James says, chapter 2, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Why? Because you have fallen short of the standard. You have fallen short of God you have fallen short of the glory of God and isn't that said in Romans chapter 3 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God if if you fall short in one point you've fallen short but there is no one who just falls short in one point there must have been some very arrogant people there arguing that at all And so all men have sinned against the law. And what is the definition of sin? Sin is anything that violates, number one, God's law, and two, God's holiness. That's what sin is. And so the law reveals this. And so we are indebted to the law. But there's much more to this. The third point is, That the law points to Christ. If I'm a guilty sinner under the law and cannot be saved by the law, I need something or someone to be able to save me because I can't do it myself. Because Isaiah 64, 6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. We can't do anything to atone for our sin. We can't do anything to erase our sin. Only one cure for that, one work of that, and that is the work of Christ on the cross. We see that throughout Scripture. That is what the gospel is. And so the law becomes a tutor. Um, The law becomes a teacher, a guardian, an instructor. Let me show you the correct way. It's not through the law for salvation. It is through Christ. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 says, Therefore the law has become our tutor, paedagogos, guardian or instructor, to lead us to Christ. And then here you go. So that we may be justified by faith. So you can't be justified by the law because the law condemns and shows you sin. But you can be justified by the work of Christ and that alone. Also, you cannot be justified by the work of Christ and the law because you've just mixed in your sin and your filthy righteous deeds can't happen. And so it points us to Christ if there's going to be salvation. And even though the Jews knew about the Messiah, one wonders how much they really knew. They knew a lot as far as the Bible goes, Isaiah 53, talking about that he was crushed for our iniquities. But when he came, they wanted nothing to do with him. That which the law pointed to, pointed to him who they crucified. And they went back to the law and said, we're teachers of the law. Paul says, not us. The goal of our instruction is love. The highest eternal good for man. Not eternal punishment. And so... Putting it together, what, what do we learn about the law? That the law was never intended to be a system of salvation for man, for sinful man. Let me first tell you what justification means. So justification, uh, sometimes we hear, just as if I had never sinned. Okay, that's probably part of it. But it means much, much more than just the cancellation of sin. Forgiveness is what cancels our sin. Atonement is what cancels our sin. Justification is Christ's righteousness is applied to us. If you think about your bank account, maybe you're in debt. So you go to one of those places that consolidates your debt. Next thing you know, they help you consolidate your debt. No more debt. Well, can I borrow $100 from you? Uh, no, I don't have any money. I just got out of debt. Oh, so we need, as 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 men, women, as, as mankind, we need not only do I, uh, that our sins are forgiven, but we need righteousness to get to heaven. Remember, that's God is the God is the standard. Well, I don't have the righteousness, but Christ's Christ Christ's righteousness is imputed to us the moment that we trust Christ. That is the beauty of justification of that doctrine. Now, you know, surely when you're sharing the gospel, you don't go into all the theological terminology with them, but but that's what's happening. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So it's it's the theology of imputation thanks to Adam. Sin and the sinful nature has been imputed to us. When Christ died on the cross, our sin was imputed to him as if he sinned and he died and paid the price. The moment we place our faith in him, his righteousness is imputed to us. And that's how you answer the question, well, what if I'm right with the Lord, but I walk out and get hit by the proverbial Mack truck and I die and go to heaven, but I never confess that sin. You have the righteousness of Christ. You're clothed with him and and you're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And how do you get that righteousness? By faith. You don't pay for it. You don't work for it. Therefore, the law is out. The law is not a system for salvation. Christ is, and the law points us to Christ. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And let's go to verse 20, and we'll look at A. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, and then following. Look at what he says. It's very clear. Because of the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. You're not going to get justification from the law or from any works. And then he explains, for for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Verse 21. But now, apart from the law, excluding the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For well, there is no distinction. For all have sinned, Jew and Gentile alike, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And so... That's why the law points us to Christ, because it was never intended to be a system of salvation. So now you can imagine, every time you're thinking of a false religion, now when you're thinking of a cult, and they talk about bringing in the law, and that you have to do certain things, maybe even worship on the Sabbath day, Saturday, in order to be saved, they have just brought in the law. They have just contradicted themselves from the gospel that Paul gives. That's why it becomes false. Heterodox. Doxy is the word, other teaching, other doctrine. In fact, Paul even goes so far to say in Romans 10, verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. When you come to Christ, the law is not a part of your salvation, your righteousness to everyone who who believes? So, in that sense, the law is good. But I want to ask another question because you're probably thinking, "Well, well, what do we do with the law then, as believers? Is is there any use for us at all with the law?" And the answer is yes. So the only thing is, is you can't look at it as a means for salvation, but it's still moral when it says, "Do not kill." do not murder. That's a good moral teaching. That comes from the law. Now we don't say that for salvation. We say that for moral teaching. So it becomes um, a, a moral standard then. Uh, morality, some of it. Now we're not talking about the festivals and uh, you know the, the, their special days and and anything they did that was part that they had to do in order for for them to be right with the Lord. No, none of that. But we're just saying about, like, maybe even like talking in reference to the Ten Commandments. Did you know that the Ten Commandments are, most of them, some of them are quoted in the New Testament? Others are inferred to. But it cannot save you. It, it is good for us, where it says, do not commit adultery, do not covet. Do not steal all of those that it says in Romans 13, 9. You shall not murder. Or how about Ephesians that we were just in a while ago. When Paul talks to the children, uh, the, probably the context of believing children, when they become believers, the, the, it applies to them before they become a believer, but uh, but he's thinking of a believing household, at least I think that way. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And he quotes from the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Can I say, well, I don't have to honor my father and mother because it's part of the law. Christ is the end of the law. No, that's not at all what was ever meant. People who would preach that, and they do preach, preach that today, they don't understand it. They're making confident assertions of what they don't understand. Of how do you look at the law in the light of grace, in the light of what Christ has done. By the way, another, another great thing about the law is it demonstrates the magnitude of Christ's perfect and complete work of atonement for all sin. It says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 Having canceled out the certificate of debt, which I believe is the law of God, law of Moses. On the cross, he canceled it out. Everything that was against us, every, every part of the law that we broke, Christ paid for on the cross. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In that sense salvation sense it is the end of the law but it is still there and its moral precepts are still there because God is still the holy God the law is still the standard of God Romans chapter 8 seems to do well to put it together verses 3 and 4 for what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. As far as salvation goes, the law has nothing to do with our salvation. As far as morality in obeying God Well, there are moral principles from the law that are mentioned in the New Testament that we are to keep, not for salvation, but for sanctification through the Holy Spirit. Well, let me me close with this. Since we see properly understanding the law is the law is good. The law reveals man's sin. The law points to Christ. The law is not a system of salvation. And the law is a moral guide in the New Testament. Well, What about today? Do these things exist today? Yes, there is legalism today. There's actually two prongs of legalism. One legalism you could call salvation legalism, meaning that one has faith in Christ, but has to keep the law or a particular commandment in order to be saved. The other one is, we could say, sanctification legalism or spiritual legalism. This is believing that a believer is saved by placing his faith in Christ, not saved by keeping the law, but sanctified and more spiritual in keeping certain commandments and man-made principles. If you don't do this, if you don't do this what we say on Sundays, if, 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 you know, you have all these other kinds of man-made things and you don't do them like our church does them, you aren't spiritual. Now, let me just say, I'm not saying it's, it's wrong for us as parents and families to have principles. And maybe God has taught us from the scriptures, I don't really like this. I don't like the way it's going in culture today. So for my family, we're not going to do that. It doesn't make me more spiritual. It makes me more alert and aware and a better spiritual leader. And I'm going to come back to again, though, what about the Seventh-day Adventists? Why, Why am I picking on them? I'm not picking on them. You could go to the Mormons, and the Mormons have the blood atonement law. Not Christ's blood atonement, but that murder to those who deserve it atones for their sins. Not Christ atones for their sins, but their murder. Their own murder atones for their own sins, which is never taught in Scripture. And many of the cults and many false religions bring in the law in one way or another and twist it, or it's some sort of works. But again, was, what's fresh on my mind, and I'm probably going to be doing a series on Seventh Day Adventists. probably as soon as we're done with the book of Second Kings, we've, we've, done, we've done the Mormons, we've done Jehovah's Witnesses, and I want to do the uh, Seventh-day Adventists. Some Seventh-day Adventists believe that if you do not worship on the Sabbath Sunday, you cannot be saved, point blank. There are a bunch who will never admit to that, but they'll explain away so that it sounds like their mainstream Christianity believe in the death of Christ. So, but not all of them will say that. But all of them will say this. And by the way, Ellen White says it. Ellen White is the prophetess. And I believe we're going to talk about her when we do this study. And I believe she was vainglorious. I believe she was deceptive. I believe she would change these visions just like the Mormon church to make so that they're not persecuted. She would say certain kinds of foods you cannot eat. She heard this from God. It was to the church. So the church does not eat them. But her secretary wrote in her journal that she would often catch Mrs. White uh, eating the foods that she told everybody they couldn't eat. There was a certain kind of dress that underneath their dress, they had to wear these kind of like parachute pants. And... It was a real embarrassment, the way I understand, to the Seventh-day Adventists, but they had to do it because the prophetess, which is another mark of a false religion, when you have someone who's receiving extra revelation, extra other than the Bible, and then saying, we're the only ones, if you don't do this, you're not going to be saved. You can't be saved. And yet they saw her, toward the end of her life, not wearing those clothes. And when asked about it, never answered. But the real deal is, she wrote that if you don't go worship on the Sabbath, that you are not saved. And if you especially don't go on the Sabbath in the tribulation, you will have to take you will be taking the mark of the beast and you will not be saved see they come up with a theory called the Sunday law there's going to be a Sunday law in the tribulation and the and the Sunday law says you've got to worship on Sunday and everyone who does that takes the mark of the beast only those who worship on the sabbath and disobey that law there was a professor from the Seventh Day Adventist who said there are two things that definitely relate to salvation in the Seventh-day Adventist doctrine. Number one is the Sabbath-keeping. And then another one, which I don't have any time at all, called investigative judgment, which is basically Christ is on the judgment seat now watching what all of us are doing even though we've received Christ for salvation he's judging us and we won't know if we're going to make it until we die and stand before him when romans chapter 8 verse 1 says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus but according to them it's still a matter of works paul writes this in colossians 2:16 it was happening in his day, as we're seeing, and it's happening in ours. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ he was telling these Gentiles, don't let the Judaizers come in and intimidate you and judge you for these things, because Christ is the end of the law for those who are saved in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is what helps us understand the law and the law in light of the gospel of grace, salvation in Christ. And Father, we're not saying that we're the only ones that are right and you have to come to this church to be saved. But Father, with all that is within us, we believe having studied the scriptures, these are, these major doctrines are the right doctrines, that salvation is by faith Alone in Christ alone, it's justification by faith. Uh, in fact, Lord, it's so obvious in your word, I just can't believe that people just can't grasp it. Other people uh, in these false religions can't grasp it, Lord. There's a blindness there. But Father, we, we ask then for teaching such as this to minister to us to secure our faith, but also to enable us in a loving way to talk to others about these doctrines, especially the doctrine of salvation. May we say it in a loving way and may the goal of our teaching be love. And we'll thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.